Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, December 4th, 2017. From Slated to the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. The Sunday shows found Flipping Flynn fascinating, as well they should... It's a big, big story. It's an unbelievable story. Well, the president's tweet that I fired him because he lied to the FBI. Wait, did I admit that? Yeah, that part was pretty unbelievable. And then John Dowd, the president's lawyer, came out and said, yeah, no, no, no. That was me. I tweeted that. First time ever. Uh, I got access to Donald Trump's Twitter account, and I put out there for the world just the most ill-advised legal sentence that I could possibly construct. Also, I made it sound exactly like Donald Trump. That's totally what happened. And then we wait 45 minutes, and it's like, wait a minute, you know what? The president can't obstruct justice. That's what I meant to say. By saying that I fired him, which was totally my tweet, what I really meant to say is that the president can't obstruct justice. I mean, the president is justice. The president can't obstruct what he is no more than a majestic eagle can obstruct flight or that the noble mighty redwood can obstruct leafiness. He can't obstruct justice. That's it. I think we're all good. So yeah, what I'm saying is the story of the Flynn plea deal is newsworthy. It's compelling. I can't look away. Could have brought implications. Could. Could. Maybe will down the road. Maybe it won't. Maybe there'll be dozens and dozens of other deals and developments before the investigation winds down. This is unlike the tax cuts that were passed by the Senate. That development will fundamentally affect every man, woman, and child in America. Maybe not majestically like the eagle or disastrously like when a redwood falls on you, but that is governance. All of the debate that we've been having for years and years and years in the primaries, in the general election, such that debate took place in the general election, in every Senate election and House election, it's all about these fundamental questions contained in the tax bill. And it wasn't a debate. There it was, right there. It was going on in the Senate, and it was covered, but it wasn't covered like Flynn. It wasn't even covered like kneeling for the national anthem. The bill passed without a tremendous you or much of a cry. I don't think that regular Americans simply knew or cared or had the tools to critically think about the details of the tax bill. Taxes are complicated, and you got the standard deduction and the personal exemption and the individual mandate, all phrases that seem specifically concocted to be off-putting to people who are going about their lives and don't understand the intricacies of the issues. So Flynn is newsy. 
it's also very attractive. It's a clean narrative. It's intriguing. It's perhaps a noose tightening. It's dramatic. It's a criminal investigation. That's, that follows a story structure arc. The tax bill does not. The tax bill is only the very soul of governance. It's why these men and women who voted for it or against it run for office and put up with all they put up with and grouse about being able to make more in the private sector. Now, here's how the Sunday shows devoted their coverage to Flynn or the tax bill. CBS was good. Face the Nation, the mention of tax on that show, 85 times, the mention of Flynn, 30 times. But the Sunday on Meet the Press, Flynn got 40 mentions and tax got 12. And on ABC, Flynn got 64 mentions, tax got 55. I just simply think that modern politics are too complicated for most people. Oh, uh, I have a strong opinion on dynamic scoring. I will tell you I'm a machinist from Muncie, Indiana, but let me tell you about 0.4% growth versus the 0.08% growth forecast. Let me, let me sit down and tell you about that. No, that's just not realistic. I don't know if it should be. So, so here's what happens. People throw up their hands or have rough heuristics about what they think about taxation. They create broad sweeping generalization. That's what they call party affiliations. And they'll wait to see if their taxes go up or down in 2018, and maybe they'll form a more personalized gut opinion of the tax bill. It's not that people are blasé or apathetic. I just think we're asking too much of them. What people vote on, even people who are interested in politics, by and large, it's, it's issues like abortion or guns or crime, health care, it turns out, civil rights, the personality of the candidates. So what we do is we hope our candidates have the right stances on those issues that we really understand, and we use that as a proxy for this complicated and deadly boring but unbelievably serious tax debate. But the consequences of this tax bill will in fact have a greater effect on the structure of society than almost anything else we're talking about. Look at it this way. Let's say another election comes around and the white working class is still really, really angry. It will express itself in strong opinions on issues like policing or maybe even trade deals. But this tax bill, how this tax bill affected Americans will be why they're angry. And let's say urban professionals seem smug and a little disconnected from middle America. Well, that will show up on an issue like global warming. But this tax bill, and in fact, you know, 40 years of tax policy will have created much of the fault lines we're talking about. And the media seems a little overwhelmed and not up to the task of covering taxes, too. And the shame of it is we're not distracted by an irrelevant item. Our attention is drawn by a rightly compelling topic. But we do somersaults when Mike Flynn flips. We're fairly mum over a state tax next. On the show today, I spiel about a massive merger in the fields of healthcare, retail, and most importantly, me. But first, he was the White House photographer for Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama. He has a giant book of gorgeous photographs of the latter. Pete Souza shares some words over these images. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
Peter J. Souza is an American photojournalist. He worked for newspapers for a time, but he was also the chief official White House photographer for Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama. With the Barack Obama credit in mind, he is out with Obama, an intimate portrait, Pete Souza. And this is a uh, gigantic and beautifully rendered book that incorporates so much of the Obama presidency and a little bit beforehand. Hello, Pete Souza. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me on. So let's just go over what that job means. My first question is, who's your editor as White House uh, official photographer? Um, I'm the decision maker on on which which photograph gets out. Now, I always have another set of eyes uh, look at the photos. So it usually it was Josh Ernest from uh, the press office until he became press secretary, and then uh, we we had someone else in the press office. But but I was the you know decision maker on which one. So then that tells me that they had to trust you implicitly, and I bet that after a little bit of a learning curve, they learned to. So what was it about the communication between what the White House wanted and what you were giving them? Tell me a little bit about if there was a push and pull and what, they, what you eventually learned to give them that they liked and what they liked that you were giving them. Just to start out, we would hang these pictures, these behind-the-scenes pictures in the on the walls of the West Wing, and, and the digital folks came to me and said, we gotta, we got to show these to the public. The public needs to see these. And I was the holdout. You know, I get mm. credit and blame for utilizing social media, but the, the, the truth of the matter is I was the one who was hesitant to do it. And the uh, digital folks convinced me, along with the White House press office, that, no, this is the administration that wants to be transparent. They want people to see photos from behind the scenes now. Once they uh, convinced me this was an okay thing to do, you know, I stipulated that my office was going to be the ones curating the collection, if you will. In other words, we were going we to be the ones that were going to do the editing. I didn't want somebody from the press office looking over my shoulder at all the pictures. I, myself and people that worked with me were professionals. We've been, a lot of us had been in this business a long time, and we felt we were best suited to choose what were the the best photographs, what were the authentic photographs. And so that's sort of like the, how the relationship was uh, established. I didn't actually do like a, a count per se, but my guess is, you know, 96% of the photographs that I showed to Josh Ernest, we made public. When you were photographing Obama with other heads of state, uh, would you try to be, I suppose, diplomatic in your framing of the photos? I mean, like I didn't want to cause an international incident, right? Yes, (laughs) right. Uh, But I mean, I wanted to be, you know, authentic. I mean, there was never a meeting, for instance, where the two leaders, president and his guests, were like yelling at each other the whole time or anything. That's not the way this president operated. So it was very subtle differences between any picture, to be honest with you. I mean, usually there was a discussion back and forth. And a lot of times it was like, okay, should we show the president talking or the president listening? And a lot of times it was based on, well, if there was been a head of state visit the day before, what had we done the day before? Because you don't want to like every picture to look the same. Were there different ground rules for different members of the White House staff or the president's family? 
No, I mean, the, I, I was the de facto family photographer. There really wasn't any instances where, you know, someone said, don't take pictures of Malia and Sasha at this occasion. Now, uh, we were very protective of the photographs that we made public of them. We didn't want people to see pictures of them interacting with their parents, the president and the first lady. But, you know, we're, we're just trying to be respectful of them, of uh, being able to grow up and not constantly feel that every picture I was taking was going to be posted on social media of them. So you have, this wouldn't be his first State of the Union, but his first speech to a joint session of Congress uh, in February 24th, 2009. That's not called State of the Union. And there you're shooting it uh, from below. And the effect that I get, and there's so many different ways to shoot a State of the Union or State of the Union-esque speech. But what that is trying to communicate to me is a little bit from the president's perspective. You have other shots where it really literally is people looking at, I'm sure you're right next to uh, President Obama, people looking right at him. So you're seeing through his eyes. This is Obama in full uh, figure and he's waving to the crowd. But you also do get a sense of how large the hall is and what the stakes are. Yeah. I mean, my attitude is like, you know what he looks like. You don't need to show like this tight shot of him at a podium all the time. Right. And so I was always trying to give the perspective of where he was. And State of the Union, uh, it's the only time that myself and usually one wire service photographer has access to the floor of the House of Representatives because normally you don't have access. Like doing a podium picture just seemed like not the way to go. Why not show more of a what Congress looks like. And so that's kind of why I chose that one. By the end, the speechwriters and the president himself were talking about, let's not do the same old State of the Union with a laundry list. Let's try to do something different. You could debate how successful they were in the verbal presentation. What about you visually? I mean, you're, there are certain events that you cover every year. How do you try to get different and break <laughs> out of uh, the box with what you'd been doing for seven years by the end? It's hard. It's really hard but it, on some things, on some events. And State of the Union was one of them where it, it is, you know, the same basic situation every time, which is why you don't see, you know, eight pictures from uh, each of the State of the Union addresses because they kind of tend to look the same. But I will say this. He would have these uh, 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 receptions in the East Room. I probably covered – I don't know, at least two dozen of these in the eight years. And, and it, so it would be like, you know, Polish-American month reception or something like that. And, you know, once you sort of like just go through the motions all, almost, but you're, you're, you're hoping that maybe this is the time there'll be a good picture. And then finally in 2016 at, a, at one of these receptions for African-American History Month, uh, I made one of my favorite pictures of the administration from one of these routine events. It was a picture of this young boy, Clark Reynolds, who was at the front of the rope line, and his tie was hanging over the rope line. And just before the president uh, bent down to to greet Clark, he touched his cheek with his hand. The president did. Yeah. And it's this picture of Clark Reynolds, young African-American boy, looking up. At the president, you don't even see the president, but you see the president's hand. And it's just a very evocative photograph. So that is what 
as a photographer, kept me on my toes is never knowing when in a small moment there would be a huge photograph. You were plucked from being a, a journalism professor for this job, right? Uh, photojournalism professor. Photojournalism yep. professor. Is the difference between what you're doing and propaganda the intention of the people involved? How do you think about the question of, you know, I'm, is this work being used for what could be defined as propaganda? I don't think what we made public was propaganda. It's, you know, if people want to say that, you know, people are going to say whatever they want to say. I'll say this. You know, my background is in photojournalism, have worked for newspapers, magazines. When you walk into the White House, you don't suddenly start taking pictures differently. Am I a photojournalist when I was at the White House? By strict definition, no. But, like, I approached it the same way. My mode of operation was to capture authentic moments and, and try to capture the mood and, and the emotion. I think my pictures are pretty damn authentic and, and, and true to, to what happened. When you had thoughts, uh, political thoughts, about the substance of what you were chronicling, of the discussions going on, what did you do with those thoughts? kept them to myself. <laughs> I mean, what am I going to say? I lean uh, Democratic. Uh, I am actually have always been registered to vote as an independent, but I would say that I lean Democratic. So it wasn't like, you know, I vehemently ever disagreed with what President Obama was doing. And having worked for President Reagan, I could see that he was a man of, I mean, I respected him as, as, as a person and as a, as a president. I think it'd be difficult to work for someone that you vehemently disagreed with everything they did or, you know, someone who you didn't respect as a person. But in terms of like, you know, whether I agreed with president's policy on, I don't know, the Keystone Pipeline or something yeah. like that. I mean, you know, that – first of all, I don't know all the information that he knows and that's not my job. I mean, my job is to visually document what's taking place, not be involved in, like, policy. But it is easier when you mostly agree with the person that you're at his elbow and living with for so, mu for so long. I don't know, though. I mean, like, I thought I did a pretty good job during the Reagan days. I, I didn't yeah. have the same, same kind of access that I did with President Obama just because I didn't have that the the established relationship with him but i you know i didn't like photograph any differently because i you know disagreed with things president reagan was doing could you tell that ronald reagan was a person who knew his way around visual storytelling that's a good question um you know it's interesting it, it, it was a different time obviously during the 80s the print magazines were sort of king and when they were doing a special story on Reagan, they would be allotted, you know, 15 or 20 minutes to essentially set up lights and kind of direct where they wanted Reagan to sit or, uh, you know, it was more those kinds of pictures. And, and President Obama wouldn't like that was not his thing. He didn't mm. he didn't like he couldn't stand posing for magazine covers like he, he would give photographers very little time. But he didn't mind somebody tagging along with him. Like there, there are dozens of times where uh, an outside photographer working for you know a magazine or a newspaper would 
spend a day or more than a day uh, photographing President Obama. And I, you know, I would sort of like be there, not babysitter, but they would kind of tag along with me. And he didn't mind that at all. And I don't know that President Reagan minded that, but I don't think his, the, the people in the Reagan press office were accommodating for a lot of those types of requests. The presidency, oh, they say it ages you, eight years ages you, you know, I know that. But from the book, the cumulative effect of the book is just to really appreciate how much is on one human being's plate. Do you have any thoughts about just the amount of burden we put on one man? And, you know, if that's, I don't know, if that's the best way to structure this extremely important job. You know, I just actually just... uh uh, saw President Obama just uh, like an hour or so ago. I stopped by his office to see a couple of, of his friends, and I, r- I ran into him. Wow! And he's still the same person he was when he was president. I like he's not like suddenly a different person. But I sort of detect a little bit where the weight uh, of the world is not on his shoulders anymore, and you could sort of see that just in the way he conducts himself now. <laughs> Did he, did he tell you if he saw the book and liked the book? He said he liked the book. I, so I was happy. I was a little nervous about it because I had given him a copy, uh, you know, like a couple weeks before it was released, and I just kind of left it with him, mm-hmm. and then I didn't hear it back. So I was like a little nervous <laughs> yeah, <laughs> about it. But, I, you know, my uh, what, what I was really trying to do is is to get it right, like to be authentic and to be – honest in showing the ups and downs of of his presidency. And there are some downs that you see. But, you know, ultimately, other people are going to have to judge if if I got it right or not. I think I, I came close, at least. The name of the book is Obama, An Intimate Portrait. It says this is the definitive visual biography of Barack Obama's historic presidency captured in unprecedented detail by his White House photographer. And that photographer is Pete Souza. Thank you so much, Pete. Oh, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying, 
unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. So big announcement today in the all-important field of things that affect me. My healthcare provider, Aetna, will merge with my drugstore, which is Howie's Pharmacy. But when Howie's is closed, I go to CVS. And Howie's has been closed for 10 years after Howie got a little lax with the old prescription pad. Anyway... You remember the NBA on NBC? Here's CVS on CBS. By joining forces with insurance giant Aetna, CVS says they envisioned their locations becoming something of a community-based medical center that includes space for wellness, clinical and pharmacy services, as well as vision, hearing, nutrition, beauty, and medical equipment. Oh, great. You thought it was hard to figure out where they stocked the toilet paper when it was just a drugstore. Now it's a community-based wellness dojo. You know what? I'll just wander through the aisles and try to find the double ply myself. This is just a dream come true for me. You know, I've always wanted to be able to get my health care from the same place I got AA batteries and Halloween candy. Yes, doctor, I was wondering, could you give me a referral? Should I go with the Mike and Ike's or the Hershey Miniature Multipacks? You know, did it come up during your residency? Now, this deal might not go through because, as CVS on CBS notes, The merger needs to be approved by antitrust regulators, who recently put the brakes on AT&T's $85 billion purchase of Time Warner. Well, we know why that deal is having problems. So long as Kenny, who's working in the stockroom in the Parsippany location, doesn't talk shit about Donald Trump, this should be fine. Fake stockroom chatter. You see, this deal, this uh, CVS and Aetna deal, it's what's called a vertical merger, meaning the two entities are complementary. They're not in the same business. So when two healthcare companies like Anthem and Cigna tried to merge, that was shot down because that would hurt consumers. But I don't see how this deal helps consumers. Oh, listen, I tried to keep an open mind. I watched CNBC when the CEO of both companies were on. There was Larry Merlot, president of CVS. We think we have the opportunity here to begin to bend that cost curve and at the same time help people achieve their best health. Oh, God, he said bend the cost curve. Bend the cost curve. Live their best health lives. Speak their truths. Come on, Merlot. This is the same wine, different bottle. You're looking to contain costs. And that is fine. You're a for-profit business. Achieving my best health does not have a lot to do with your profits, though. Mark Bertolini, Aetna's CEO, sold the merger this way. Think of an idea where we have 10,000 new front doors to the healthcare system, where people can walk in, where they can ask for some help. Front door to healthcare. Where did I hear that phrase before? Oh, yeah, it was the same video 25 seconds prior. Really create a new front door to healthcare in our country. Yeah, actually, it's a back door to profit, not a front door to healthcare. I don't begrudge you fellows your profit, but here's the thing. I like my doctor. Shout out to Fagelman, although I do need the results of that test back, sir. By the way, part of the reason I like my doctor 
is his name's Fagelman. It's a good Jerry Lewis name. Fagelman! But you know what? The fact that I say that in his office over and over and he pretends to laugh, it does represent the personal interaction between patient and doctor. CVS. CVS is just a retail store I use, or in fact, that I put up with. I kind of loathe CVS. One reason, it's the goddamn self-checkout. They fired almost all the checkout people, and now they ask us all to self-scan. And I worry about this happening at the CVS slash Aetna in the not-too-distant future. Well, thanks for coming in today, Mike. And on the way out here, you take this CAT scan machine and tell me if you find anything. Beep. No spleen detected. Oh, man, that's weird. I know it's there. Beep. No spleen detected. I'm, I'm really feeling particularly bilious today. There should be a spleen. Beep. 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 Come on, I'm aiming it right there at the bottom of the ribcage. Beep. Please place all items in the lymphatic system in the bag before scanning next organ. Oh, Jesus. Can we just get a doctor to do this like they used to? This damn machine is not working. Uh, you know what? Screw this. I am just going to where I know they will give me a proper splenectomy, where I had my appendectomy done with precision and care. Trader Joe's. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bienname's favorite White House photograph is that shot of a famous Watergate conspirator at the height of his troubles, barely struggling to grasp onto a low-hanging tree branch. It's commonly called, hang in there, G. Gordon Liddy. Just producer Mary Wilson notes that Rutherford B. Hayes was not only the first president to use a telephone, he was the first to extend his palm to make it look like the Washington Monument was right there in his hand. The medium was young and people were impressed. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, notes that through the use of double exposures, it was made to seem that Andrew Johnson was actually haunted by the ghost of Abe Lincoln. Wait, actually, that did happen. The gist. While it is not true that Taft once got stuck in a bathtub, he actually once did get stuck in a photo booth with Secretary of State Philander Knox. The resulting strip of photographs was hilarious, and Taft would always say, Look, Philander! Look at him! It looks like he's crying! To which the Secretary of State would intone, Yes, Mr. President, that was a swell time. All the while silently shuddering and fearing that the nightmares would return. Oomperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening.